Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. Well, let's jump right into it. We're going to, uh, the passage of scripture that, by the way, that whole experience of Mike reading that, trying to stay with the, uh, the, the children's Bible, that was just my, I just want to hear that story uh, told over and over again. And in that way, it's just a, a delight. But uh, let's stand again and let me read that passage of Scripture. And as we give some consideration to this from Luke chapter two, beginning at the first verse. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger when they uh, when they had seen him. They spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. You could be seated. Now, the various events and characters in the Christmas story that we've read about today and have heard about and heard sung to us and seen on the screens in the most marvelous ways, they create these powerful images in our minds of a manger little feeding trough, uh, a young couple, a baby, some shepherds, some angels. And we are talking today and throughout the season of Advent, as we know, about an event that occurred over 2,000 years ago. Really, when it happened, it was an incredibly obscure event. The birth of a baby to some nobodies in a small little village in the middle of nowhere. And yet these stories, if we have the ears to hear have become a kind of vessel for the message of God, of, of good news, of redemption and forgiveness and hope to a, to a world that's desperate for all of this. 
And if we're alive to this story, if we're able to pay attention, if we can catch our breath for a moment and listen, we will see that this story has invaded our world and changed it. And this story offers this sad old world of ours another way of living. Indeed, a better way. A most wonderful way. Notice that this Christmas story teaches us that the way of Christ is obscure and humble. Think about the events and the characters of that first Christmas. These events and characters that changed the world took place in the most obscure and hidden of places. It all revolved around a completely unknown teenage peasant girl and her fiancé in some backwater town named Nazareth, a town of less than 500 people. The actual birth of Christ, as we read, occurred in another very small town called Bethlehem, and the child was born in what might have been a cave where animals were kept, and his first bed was a feeding trough for animals. And his only visitors were a few lowly shepherds who some angels had appeared to who told him about this birth. And it has to say something amazingly wonderful about God, doesn't it? That the eternal Son of God was born, and at the time, almost nobody knew about it. The one whose word brought the universe into existence comes and visits this world that he has made, and he does it in obscurity. Nobody knew. He was far away from the crowds, far away from the power centers of this world. God visited this world in obscurity because that's the kind of God he is. He is the God of obscurity. And that's all really I'd like us to reflect on today. And I think if we pay attention to, that's plenty to reflect on. The obscurity of God and his embracing of obscurity and his valuing of it. And how that is in such conflict to the values that are so prevalent in North America today. We need to realize that the power of the Christmas story is found precisely in this obscurity, this hiddenness, this humility. And this should not, be, should not surprise us because this is how Jesus lived. This is how he taught. This is what he modeled for us. He told us that we should follow him precisely because he was gentle and humble of heart. We are told that to follow Christ as we reflected on as we bless the children today, to receive his kingdom into our lives, we must have the trust and the innocence of a little child. The child's acute awareness of need and their willingness to ask for help and then this expectation that they will be helped. That's what a little child is like. Jesus constantly taught if we exalt ourselves, we will be humbled. But if we humble ourselves, we'll be exalted. And when Jesus spoke of the kingdom of God, he did not speak of a military or or political kingdom that many hoped that he would bring. He actually said many kind of strange things about this. He compared the kingdom of God to a mustard seed, which is a very small thing, an insignificant thing. But within the seed is the power to bring great growth, and a huge, huge tree can be grown, and the birds of the air will make the nest in it. On other occasions, he would compare the kingdom of God to yeast, Just this little small organic substance, unseen, insignificant. But when it's worked into the dough, it changes everything, as we see in the bread we share today. It brings life. It is pervasive. It's everywhere. 
You see, most of what we've been taught in this world about changing things is by the use of personal power. The, the, the desire to exert our will upon others. To overwhelm them. Either by sheer force or by manipulation or trickery of some kind. But doesn't it say something very wonderful about God that the Almighty One does not use the power He has to force His way upon us. He does not overwhelm us. Instead, He woos us. He invites us. He comes to us in an almost hidden way, in the most humble of circumstances. And only those who are ready to hear, ready to see, who are alive to His voice, will turn aside from the roads they walk in order to follow Him. You see, the way of Christ is a radically different way of living. The way of Christ has always been most effectively entered into by those who have learned the art of humility and hiddenness and a kind of self-forgetfulness. As C.S. Lewis so wonderfully said, humility is not thinking less of yourselves, it is thinking of yourself less. It is a kind of a freedom from the obsession to always notice ourselves and how we are doing and how we are being treated. It is truly a very sacred self-forgetfulness that flows out of a peacefulness, an internal peacefulness that comes from knowing that our identity is secure in God. The Christmas story gets its power from its obscurity, its humility. Doesn't everything change? Isn't it a a radical, paradigmatic shift when we begin to realize that God is a God of obscurity and humility? When we reflect on that, doesn't that just mess with almost everything? In Philippians chapter 2, in this early Christian hymn, we are told there, and you can throw it up on the screen if you want to, Karen. We are told there that Jesus, while in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. If you leave that up there for a little bit, Karen. There are two ways to translate that uh, second uh, sentence there. One way, and this is the way that most translations translate it, or at least the sense we get when we read those translations, but one way is to say that even though Jesus was in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to use to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking upon himself the very nature of a servant. That's a legit translation, and it's understandable. Even though he was God, he was willing to put all that aside in becoming a human being, a servant, and all that's true. But other scholars argue that the grammar here actually points to a more radical, and I would say a more wonderful way of understanding this passage. They argue that instead of translating with the idea, even though he was God, he put all that aside to become human and a servant, they argue that the more accurate translation from the original language would be, because he was God, he put all that aside and became human and became a servant. That's a pretty big deal there. It's not primarily the idea that even though he was God, he took this humble position, but more foundationally it was because he was God. 
In other words, Jesus took on human form and became a human and took on the very nature of a servant because that is actually the very nature of God. That's not stepping out of God's character. That is God's character. That is who our God is. Humble, a servant, one who delights in obscurity. We get another peek into the nature of God in John chapter 13, where Jesus washes his disciples' feet. And the very beginning of the story says this. You could, yeah, thanks. You got it up there. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So therefore, he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash his disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Here's the key thing to learn here. Jesus here, and you leave that up for a second, he knew really who he was. He knew who he belonged to. He knew where he had come from, and he knew where he was going. And because of this intimate knowledge of his father and who he was in relationship to his father, he could serve. See, one thing we should understand about God is that he's incredibly secure. There is no sense of inadequacy in him. No sense of not being enough. No insecurity that is ever threatened by taking a one-down position or by serving. Jesus serves. He is humble. He delights in obscurity because he knows, he knows who he is. You know, he knows who he belongs to. He knows where he's come from and where he's going. And so in light of all this, the obscurity of the Christmas story begins to make perfect sense. God has nothing to prove. He is incredibly secure. And he sees this world as it actually is. As it actually is. He's not in the least bit impressed with human power. Or wealth. Or fame. Or influence. He sees value in every single human being. His incarnation his enfleshment as a little baby is a loud shout to the universe that this world matters. That hidden beauty, hidden goodness, is no less valuable because it's hidden. But we have a problem with this in, in our culture. We do not value obscurity. In fact, our culture does not see value, that much value in beauty or goodness until this beauty and goodness is well known. I heard a man once say to another man who had written a song, he said to this man, that song is so good, it should be on the radio. And this was back in the day when radio was the really only way you get your music known. And the man meant well. He meant it as a compliment. It's a wonderful compliment and all that. But if we pay attention to what he was saying, we see behind that thinking, he was thinking and kind of communicating for that song to be truly valuable. It had to be well known. We live in a celebrity culture. We hunger for fame. Or we worship those who have it, kind of live vicariously through them. With the explosion of the Internet, we have thousands upon thousands of people, perhaps millions, who are trying to be YouTube sensations, who are trying to write a post that goes viral. We long for people to like our Facebook updates. We want people to see what we made for dinner, where we went on vacation, what we read in the Bible today, whatever pet peeve we want to share with the world. We want to be known. We're trying to answer this really important question. Does my 
little life matter? Do I really matter? I work with pastors all over North America, and sometimes I see things that are very sad to me. Pastors are trained, many pastors are trained in various seminars, conferences, and in books on how to get their name known out there, their name and the name of their church known out there, how to increase their social media footprint. We are taught how to increase our followers on Twitter. We are taught how to get pictures of ourselves preaching on a Sunday and then have a little meme written on it that says something that we said in the sermon, then we put it out there and people can like it and enjoy it. In fact, if you want to, you can take a little picture of me now while I am, I'm speaking. When I'm doing something, you'll catch me in an action point like, like, like that. And then if you would, just put it up on Facebook with a meme, God values obscurity. Hopefully thousands upon thousands will, will, will see. But it's not just pastors, but in a celebrity culture, all sorts of people live vicarious lives through the famous people in our world. I mean, just look at all the media and the television that is out there. Cable. We follow them on Facebook and on Twitter, and maybe someday they will respond to some comment we make on their tweet or in their post, and we will think, maybe only subconsciously, they know me. They, they know me. They know that I exist. And now somehow my life has value because someone who is very famous has acknowledged that I exist. Well, there is someone very, very famous, the most famous in the entire universe who knows that you exist. And health in this life is beginning to learn how to value that above everything. The question is, do I matter? Does my little obscure life matter? Do I know who I am, who I belong to, where I've come from, where I'm going? You see, until we figure that out, until we know who we are and who we belong to and where we have come from and where we are going, we will always be trying to establish our worth, our value in this world. But that's really hard to do. Because the vast majority of people in this world live in relative obscurity. Very few people know them or know much about them. But if the Christmas story is true, and I believe it is the truest thing going on in this crazy world, it is in obscurity where we will mostly meet God and come to know who I am and who I belong to, where I've come from and where I'm going. Remember the Christmas story again. There was no live tweeting by the shepherds at the manger. These were some completely unknown guys, low men on the totem pole. And angels appeared to them. I don't think angels have ever appeared to Donald Trump. Or to Barack Obama. Or to Mike Lucan. Putting them kind of all in the same package there. But they appeared to a bunch of obscure nobodies. Because that's what God is like. There was this little gathering in this little cave with animal poop and a placenta and blood and crying and danger. And God was there. The most pivotal and central event in the history of planet Earth happened in complete, utter obscurity. And to this day, the big things, the biggest things that happen in our world, the biggest things from the vantage point of God in eternity continue to happen in obscurity where nobody sees them. Very first time I ever flew in an airplane, I was 23. 
uh, years old. And I had a window seat when the plane, so I was kind of late bloomer, I guess, but I had a, a window seat. And when the plane went through the clouds and I saw the sun rising over the clouds, lighting up the clouds and the clouds look like you can walk on them or, or swim uh, in them. It was the most beautiful sight I'd ever seen in the world. And I grabbed the arm uh, of the man next to me, not knowing proper airplane etiquette. And I said, do you see this? This is amazing. And he gave me this look like I was a crazy man of some kind. And then he went back to his magazine. And I just sat there for a while and looked out the window and was in awe. And then it dawned on me that people had only begun to see this sight in the last 50 or so years. For countless millennia, all the that beauty was seen by nobody, except maybe some birds, maybe some high mountain dwellers, and God. Something is not more beautiful, valuable, because it is seen. A beautiful thing is simply beautiful. A good thing is simply good, no matter who sees it or experiences it. Mary, Joseph, some shepherds, they were chosen in their obscurity. Perhaps they were chosen because of their obscurity. But chosen for what? Chosen to serve. Chosen to be an image bearer of the beautiful, wonderful triune God. To demonstrate through our lives the, the, the beauty of the way of Jesus in a world that is in big trouble. So please hear this. No matter how alone you might feel sometimes, no matter how unimportant and insignificant you feel at times. No matter how ugly or lost you feel at times. No matter how often you feel as though your life is not worth that much. I understand where those feelings can come from. This is a hard world at times and a cruel one. And in the process, we actually can learn the wrong things. Untrue things over the course of our lives. But know this, those thoughts do not come from God. You are of tremendous value to Him. Your life matters. It is to the obscure and insignificant people, at least in the world's eyes, that Jesus came. A homeless peasant couple, some lowly shepherds, unknown people who mattered to God and who were chosen in their obscurity to bear witness to the beauty and the goodness and the obscurity and the humility of God in the flesh. Just as we are chosen to do today. Chosen in our obscurity. Let me close with a story that I haven't read here for over a decade at Oak Hills. It's from a book, The Life You've Always Wanted, by John Ortberg. And it's about an old woman named Mabel. It goes like this. A state-run convalescent hospital is not a pleasant place. It is large, understaffed, and overfilled with senile and helpless and lonely people who are waiting to die. On the brightest of days, it seems dark inside, and it smells of sickness and stale urine. I went there once or twice a week for four years, but I never wanted to go there, and I always left with a sense of relief. It is not the kind of place one gets used to. On this particular day, I was walking in a hallway that I had not visited before, looking in vain for a few who were alive enough to receive a flower and a few words of encouragement. This hallway seemed to contain some of the worst cases, strapped onto carts or into wheelchairs and looking completely helpless. As I neared the end of this hallway, I saw an old woman strapped in a wheelchair. Her face was an absolute horror. 
The empty stare and the white pupils of her eyes told me that she was blind. The large hearing aid over one ear told me that she was almost deaf. One side of her face was being eaten by cancer. There was a discolored and running sore covering part of one cheek. And it had pushed her nose to one side, dropped one eye, and distorted her jaw so that what should have been the corner of her mouth was the bottom of her mouth. As a consequence, she drooled constantly. I was told later that when new nurses arrived, the supervisors would send them to feed this woman, thinking that if they could stand this sight, they could stand anything in the building. I also learned later that this woman was 89 years old and that she had been there bedridden, blind, nearly deaf, and alone for 25 years. This was Mabel. I don't know why I spoke to her. She looked less likely to respond than most of the people I saw in that hallway. But I put a flower in her hand and said, Here is a flower for you. Happy Mother's Day. She held the flower up to her face and tried to smell it, and then she spoke. And much to my surprise, her words, although somewhat garbled because of her deformity, were obviously produced by a clear mind. She said, Thank you. It's lovely, but can I give it to someone else? I can't see it, you know. I'm blind. I said, of course, and I pushed her in her chair back down the hallway to a place where I thought I could find some alert patients, and I found one, and I stopped the chair. Mabel held out the flower and said, here, this is from Jesus. That was when it began to dawn on me that this was not an ordinary human being. Later, I wheeled her back to her room and learned more about her history. She had grown up in a small farm that she managed with only her mother until her mother died. Then she ran the farm alone until 1950, when her blindness and sickness sent her to the convalescent hospital. For 25 years, she got weaker and sicker with constant headaches, backaches, and stomach aches, and then the cancer came too. Her three roommates were all human vegetables who screamed occasionally but never talked. They often soiled their bedclothes, and because the hospital was understaffed, especially on Sundays when I usually visited, the stench was often overpowering. Mabel and I became friends over the next few weeks, and I went to see her once or twice a week for the next three years. Her first words to me were usually an offer of hard candy from a tissue box near her bed. Some days I would read to her from the Bible, and often I would pause. When I would pause, she would continue reciting the passage from memory, word for word. And other days I would take a book of hymns and sing with her, and she would know all the words to the old songs. For Mabel, these were not merely exercises in memory. She would often stop in mid-hymn and make a brief comment about lyrics she considered particularly relevant to her own situation. I never heard her speak of loneliness or pain except in the stress she placed on certain lines and certain hymns. It was not many weeks before I turned from a sense that I was being helpful to a sense of wonder, and I would go to her with a pen and paper and write down the things she would say. During one hectic week of final exams, I was frustrated because my mind seemed to be pulled in ten directions at once with all the things I had to think about. The question occurred to me, what does Mabel have to think about? Hour after hour, day after day, week after week, not even able to know if it is day or night. So I went to her and asked, Mabel, what do you think about when you lie here? And she said, I think about my Jesus. I sat there and thought for a moment about the difficulty for me of thinking about Jesus for even five minutes. And I asked, what do you think about Jesus? She replied slowly and deliberately as I wrote, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. 
I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. Lots of folks wouldn't care much for what I think. Lots of folks would think I'm kind of old-fashioned, but I don't care. I'd rather have Jesus. He's all the world to me. And then Mabel began to sing an old hymn. It goes like this. Jesus is all the world to me. My life, my joy, my awe. He is my strength from day to day. Without him I would fall. When I am sad to him I go. No other one can cheer me so. When I am sad, he makes me glad. He's my friend. This is not fiction. Incredible as it may seem, a human being really lived like this. I know. I knew her. How could she do it? Seconds ticked and minutes crawled, and so did days and weeks and months and years of pain. Without human company and without an explanation of why it was all happening. And she lay there and sang hymns. How could she do it? The answer, I think, is that Mabel had something that you and I don't have much of. She had power. Lying there in that bed, unable to move, unable to see, unable to hear, unable to talk to anyone, she had tremendous power. Here was an ordinary human being who received supernatural power to do extraordinary things. Her entire life consisted of following Jesus as best she could in her situation, patient endurance of suffering, solitude, prayer, Meditation of scripture, worship, fellowship when it was possible, giving when she had a flower, a piece of candy to offer. Imagine being in her condition and saying, I think about how good he's been to me. He's been awfully good to me in my life, you know. I'm one of those kind who's mostly satisfied. This is the 23rd Psalm come to life. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. For anyone who really saw Mabel, who was willing to turn aside, A hospital bed became a burning bush, a place where this ordinary and pain-filled world was visited by the presence of God. When others saw the life in that hospital bed, they wanted to take off their shoes, and with, with a catch of the breath and a beating of the heart and tears, they realized they were standing on holy ground. Would you pray with me, please? Father, thank you for Mabel and all the Mabels in our world. Thank you that someone who lives in obscurity, for there are many other Mabels whose story we do not know, is of value to you. And you choose us in our obscurity, in our unknownness, to live fully in the reality of the kingdom of God all around us, to walk the way of Jesus, to experience transformation to love those who are near us, to serve those, to demonstrate that you are good and that you bring hope to a world that is desperate for it. So encourage us to embrace our obscurity, to enter deeply into humility, and to discover how much you value that and how those who humble themselves will be exalted. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.